This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest is joining me remotely in a pandemic era episode of the podcast from <laughs> Milo, Maine. Welcome to the podcast, Noah Bissell. Thanks for having me, man. Uh, been a uh, long time listener, first time guest. <laughs> Noah uh, also has his own podcast. And uh, uh, so just by a serendipitous uh, reach out and connection this week, we were able to uh, get something on the schedule. Obviously, I've been a fan of Bissell Brothers for many, many years. As I mentioned to Noah, as we were talking about this, I, I looked back at my untapped check-ins and uh, my <laughs> very first check-in of the Substance IPA was back when it was still clear. Um, and that <laughs> That should date me on this uh, back in 2015. Um, but uh, no, and I've been to Maine many, a number of times over the last few years. Obviously, we've done brewers retreats in Maine. Uh, been to the Bissell Brothers Brewhouse. We've actually never met in person, but I've been a big fan of the beer for a long time. So I'm really excited about this conversation. Uh, we're going to uh, absolutely talk about New England style IPAs. Uh, our next issue of the magazine that we're working on right now is the IPA issue. And so I've been wrapped up in drinking IPAs and uh, reviewing IPAs from around the country. Before we start the conversation, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with G&D Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel G&D ahead as the premier choice for your glycol-chilling needs. Breweries you recognize like Russian River, Ninkasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and more trust G&D to chill the beer you love. Call G&D Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, Old Orchard invites you to step up your fruit game with their premier craft juice blends. Whether you're planting a passion fruit Kolsch, Concord Sour, Mango Lager, or other fruity brew, Old Orchard can supply you with consistent product at affordable prices. Their blends are packed with real fruit and natural flavors with no added sugar or other weird fillers you'd find in knockoff brands. With the rising demand for fruity seltzers and brews, the time is ripe to grow your relationship with the right juice supplier. Get your Old Orchard sample kit today with free six-pack cooler at www.oldorchard.com brewer so noah yes talk to me about uh your history in brewing and how you got where you are today as co-founder of bissell brothers in portland maine uh yeah absolutely real quick i just want to say uh i've been waiting to do this for um you know for as long as i've been listening to the podcast big fan of gd g and d chillers yeah have uh have two in portland and one up here so nice just wanna, nice yeah yeah shout out they're great folks people. and we appreciate their support uh, they've been fantastic supporters of the podcast now for a couple of years so cool um i started home brewing uh, in the uh summer between my sophomore and junior year of college um i had about six months to go before i would be 21 um was uh staying with my brother in portland for the summer uh and there was a homebrew store a couple blocks away so pretty quick math for someone in my predicament and uh just decided to uh, well, i'll just make my own and and as most home brewers find out like it ain't the same it ain't the same for a while um but uh was definitely bit by the first the, as soon as I smelled the you know wort boiling for the first time pretty much I I was hooked on 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 home brewing and rode that really hard um through uh the next full year of college and then at kind of entering senior year um my brother uh who was doing uh commercial photography photography at the time self-employed um it was kind of bitten by the entrepreneurial bug um in terms of just kind of creating the work work life you want to exist in not the other way around um it, he always gives me credit for proposing the idea that we open a brewery together i do not remember that exact i think i really think it was just sort of an organic thing and one of those things where you kind of look at each other and it just 
you're both kind of thinking the same thing. Um, so that was right around uh, the end of 2011 that we kind of handshake agreement, like, let's let's go for this. So finished out college and then about pretty much two years to the day almost from that kind of, all right, let's have a go at this moment is when we uh, sold our first batch of commercial beer. Uh, we moved into the spot uh, main beer company was operating at across the street from Allagash, the the fabled one industrial way. Um, sure, sure. Yeah, um, they were uh, at the time I was I was bartending at the Thirsty Pig, which was an amazing kind of transition from kind of foray into the the main beer scene and just kind of to have have uh, be at kind of almost the ground floor of that in a lot of ways. Uh, it's right across the street from Navarre Res too um, in Portland's Old Port. But um, kind of through that, uh, Allison, my boss at, at the Thirsty Pig, knowing Dan and Dave Kleben, um, they reached out to us about that. They kind of offered the space to us almost. They they weren't landlords or anything, but knew they were moving out and just, and I mean, at that moment in my life, it was literally like, you know, if, you know, a huge rap fan gets a call from Young Thug, like it was, I was blown away by the fact that he would just, A, the generosity behind that and, and B, yeah, just yeah. that, that he would even think about me as a person on earth wanting to open a brewery. Um, so yeah, and then from there, that, that gave us a huge leg up though, to have a space that was already a brewery, to have their, uh, uh, chiller, you know, is installed as it could be in terms of the glycol drops, or the G&D tr- chiller, I will say. Um, and uh, boiler already installed. I mean, boiler piping is a tr- Sure, sure. They saved us at least $100,000 from just throwing that, throwing us that bone. So, um, and then, yeah, um, I'll stop there because that's, uh, there's, that's, you know, the additional six years beyond that's a lot. For sure. Talk to me about that kind of creative genesis. You know, I mean, the business piece of it is one thing, but uh, you have to, as a brewery, think about what you're going to make and who you're going to serve because, you know, there you are um, across the street from Allagash. Allagash serves a lot of people and they make some phenomenal beer world-class, amazing beer in a, you know, in a number of different, uh, you know, kind of avenues. Um, you know, as a small business, you then have to think like, what am I going to make that is going to get people to walk across from the parking lot and come and drink yeah. beer here? And how is what I'm going to make going to, going to hold up to what they're drinking across the street? Yeah, that's a, um, a great question. And it, especially from how different everything was back then. The first thing that jumps out at me at that, it, there was very much this comparison of like, where do we, the, it's hard to even believe how crowded things felt then six years ago sure, as someone sure. trying to enter the, enter the industry. It just felt like there was this constant mental battle of like, why well, I, I don't have anything to add to this conversation. What are we even doing, you know, combined with this belief somewhere that you actually did but um, we were so naive back then. I mean, I remember the, <laughs> has, is the bubble, are, are we at the end of the bubble? Right. Is it about to burst? Like, oh, that's so cute with 1800 breweries. Now the, now this is the end of it. All, I know. Right? I but know. talk to me about that process for you of finding yourself and finding that brewing voice for the brewery as a whole. I think the voice, whether we thought too much about it or not, had kind of already been we had a definitely a leg up on that from just, you know, I had been brewing for the first nine months of being open or maybe it was eight, so something like that. We had, we only brewed substance on our commercial scale. That was really? literally it. Um, and that was before, uh, literally kind of that concept more or less crystallized home brewing about another, uh, two years before we even opened in the first place. Obviously, I was brew- home brewing with home brewing other other beers as well, but pretty much I would brew something like what became substance every week. In addition, then another batch of something else, um, home brewing. So I think, uh, and then that coupled with Pete's um, is why we I, I think make a really great team. Pete's. I sound so old to say this, but savvy for for, uh, for social media and stuff was just at a, a completely different 
place and level and under comprehension than mine mine still is i mean it's it it's just a shadow of uh, what his because he was just kind of living in a more digital world with photography sure, sure. Um, and just I think his natural disposition anyway so and kind of people at that time would would say it was uh, you know kind of chicken before that cart before the horse maybe or or whatever that there was this perception of kind of almost advertising before we had even sold the commercial beer because of Pete taking a lot of pictures. There was a, a presence of a our our brewery um, before from just trying to get homebrew, but, but it was very much uh, it was what it was what Pete it was very natural, you know, it was not um and it kinda as kind of the the kind of slightly more behind especially at that time more kind of behind the scenes force in the dynamic. Um, it was definitely a motivating factor for me of like put up or shut up if there is going to be this added level of scrutiny, you know. Um, you, you, better then, make, you better make beer that can hold up to the quality of your Instagram images. Yeah, like, better although, Carl Malone that shit and uh, right, get this right. delivered. Um, in those terms, and then in terms of going back to the, the yeast switch, I mean, so by that time we would maybe, we would have brewed, uh, we would have had Swish and Lux, um, Baby Genius, and Bucolia, pretty much, which is, uh, we kind of revamp, but those would have been kind of the five regular beers that we were making, and we still only would have had four FVs anyway, so there's not much much room beyond that. Um, I think it was just kind of a feeling of, and I had no right to feel that way, but just, just a, a growing sense that there was only so much depth we were going to be able to get from a being just a single strain brewery for one, but definitely being that single strain being Chico um, from just, which has literally been bred and cultured to stay at, stay the hell out of the way um, and just provide a, a very, uh, very clean canvas for whatever you want to throw on top of it. Um, so I think there was just a sense that long-term, knowing that just kind of with how our philosophy has always been is kind of one variable at a time as much as we can be is like speak going back to speaking about tweaking and brewing substance for so long before we even brewed another beer on on that scale part of that was necessity from just uh, only having two or four fbs at that time but NBC had been a really good model, I think, a really influential on philosophy for just if they released beers very infrequently, and if they did, you knew they were going to be really, really good and, and representative of their brewery. Um, and that's certainly kind of the opposite of culture now, but even then, that was kind of a little bit against the norm for restraint and frequency of different different beers. You know, that I've always kind of felt that how different can, <laughs> I think, really creating an individual identity for an, a beer, there's only so many identities a beer can have. And I think if you're trying to maintain that at a, at a weekly clip of similar, you know, under the, of beers that kind of would fall under the same umbrella, I mean, that's, that run realistically ends very quickly, um, but sorry, I got got off no, got let, off track on I, that. Let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, I think that's an interesting point. I think that that does speak to a difference in strategy that you all take. Well, I do want to be very clear. Um, firstly, that a I'm I'm in no way uh, vilifying anyone that doesn't follow this strategy uh, at all, and I completely sure, understand. Sure. To kind of the second point, I. I really don't know if it if it does work better at all. It's the only way we've decided to go about sure, things. Sure, I'm sure our anyone with a f financial mind would looking at the two options would say, uh, "Yeah, make more, make more beers, not more beer per se, but more beers." Um, so I, and that's not to say that we're um, you know martyrs martyrs for um martyrs for infrequency or anything like that but i just think that i mean hell even even how unhappy i am with some of our beers now <laughs> 
after having personally brewed, you know, some of them dozens, if not hundreds of times um, with, with my own two hands and how there's, I'm, it's still not really what quite what I want and how that's more a lot over time. I, I don't think you could ever even hope to, to reach like that hypothetical Nirvana zone for any, you know, given I beer idea in beer form. If you don't really, really commit to it. Um, but that, again, that is very much just me, and that's coming from someone that has never felt even close to like they have gotten to that that point. So, Talk to, That's a, an interesting point that you just made right there about being unhappy with the beer. And, and, you know, this is a hard one, I think, from a consumer's you know, standpoint to, to wrap your head around because obviously you're selling beer to a customer and you have to have confidence in that, and you as a creative person – are confident in what you produce that it is good and that people will enjoy it. People want to buy it. Um, but then there's that artist piece that from a creative perspective is always unsettled that will never actually be happy with what you're doing. Talk to me a little bit about how you manage that. What, you know, in those senses from a creative brewer perspective, you would, and you keep striving to improve in your beers. It's a tough, tough thing to answer and, and really be straightforward about because it, for one, it, it is very much a moving target. I mean, I, I'm sure, you know, anyone listening to this has had the experience of, you know, they had a beer at one time that it was like, you know, practically life changing tried again in a few years and it's tastes like garbage. And I mean, you know enough about the brewery to know that there's pretty much no chance that anything about the beer itself is you are the problem with, with how this, this beer has been affected. Um, so, you know, your, your palate's moving all the time, sure. um, towards a better thing. I don't really know. I mean, in, in logically maybe yes, but I don't know how reliable that train of thought even is. Um, it's, it's, almost impossible for me to like have one of our beers and just enjoy it the way a beer is supposed to be enjoyed and that is in no way playing you know my little violin at all um it is just a reality that i I think a lot of people in the industry kind of share because they're to that point of always wanting things to be better and that changes on the day you know what even where your palate is at right in that moment when it when you know, a beer, a beer hits your mouth. Um, it's, it's very hard to just get those thoughts out of the way and just have a beer, um, for me. Um, so the, (laughs) I think it makes that point of like contentment even harder or more unrealistic to, to hope to reach because I think there are always going to be things I'm going to want to change, whether they are imagined, real, not there. Uh, and that's that's scary sometimes, but it's also a, a, a really cool thing to always have something something to shoot at, at at the end of the day, which I think a lot of people in their um, vocations, you know, don't they don't quite get to feel it quite like that. Um, so I'm, I'm very lucky for that as I think anyone kind of in in that same situation is, but it, it comes with frustrations, (laughs) I guess from, but when you taste those, your, your beers, talk to me about some of, of those things, you know, that, uh, you know, you think about from a brewer's perspective of, you know, what do you love? What is it, you know, and, and what are some of those, you know, in, in a, a brewing sense, what are some of those small levers that you start tinkering with in order to test ways of achieving some of these things that you uh, you could envision, but you're not, you know, that you want to, um, you know, kind of work on and iterate on in your beers themselves? Yeah, Um I definitely at the, the the at the forefront generally is is bitterness and that's not just in the IPA 
bitterness sense. I mean, it could, it, or, or even hop derived bitterness for, for that matter. Um, but it, it is just such a tenant flavor and, and where it, it, it kind of shows itself can kind of make or break a beer at, at the end of the day. If that's kind of, if you kind of cross that threshold, sure. the bitter is what you're left with and that's, and it hangs out for too long. Like very few things are pleasant that are, are like that. Just ask an IPA in 2005, you know? Um, but, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but no, you're right. Human the, beings are conditioned to, you know, to not, uh, enjoy generally to not enjoy bitter that. Yeah. It's why no one eats salads. <laughs> you know, it's why, uh, yeah, it's why, uh, why yeah. they literally had to make a bumper sticker that told people to eat more kale. That's how bitter it is. But quality of bitterness matters also significantly yes. in beer today. Yes. And, and, um, th- that's, I think the quality is, is really be, uh, quality of bitterness is really being expounded upon in a really cool way. I would um, take just a second to um, give a shout out to Scott Janish's book. Um, the I think it's called the the modern IPA or, or the new IPA um, that you know came out the last year. So I've been rereading that um, like literally in real time now. And there's just so many different channels to think about where it's, where it's like, yeah, there's more research to be done. But just when you think about, not to keep going back to, oh, the old days, but when you even think about how much really there was out there for the, the layman, um, layman home brewer, even layman professional brewer um, to really access, to think about um, informing processes is, is crazy. So yeah, the quality of bitterness, I think, uh, for us personally, are realizing, but not really at a point to speak much on. On, we've figured out exactly what's happening in any way, but have just very continued to underestimate how much bitterness is coming from the dry hop in, in beers, um, and I think kettle bitterness and to a slightly lesser degree whirlpool bitterness had kind of been wrangled a little bit for a while in terms of there was pretty good kind of path to follow for how what's going to happen when you do x y and z sure but but the range and perception and quality of of dry hop bitterness there's just so many variables in that equation um can is vast um so trying to hone down you know the ca- causations of things and root, roots and and how that relates to ratios and contact time and it's it's awesome and then and then on, on top of that for most people they can't even see what's going on closed off tank all just a dark 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 shrouded mystery of even kind of what these hops look like when they're going down or if you're recirculating whatever it is so um really been think per, thinking about that a ton lately um and then of course it's effect with how you do things in the kettle because they are as which that book expounds upon a lot, like very related. Um, and then beyond that, uh, um, carbonation, I think is just a thought, a, a lot. It's a, it's a harder lever to play with. Um, but again, going back to the kind of more nuanced side of, of not just, yeah, it's, it's easy enough to hit a consistent, um, measured volumes of CO2 in a beer, but the finer angles of that, of how that carbonation feels from the whatever vessel you're drinking that beer out yeah. of is, can, I think we all know, can be very wide. Um, so that's more kind of, I guess, in, in mental purgatory of, of kind of just almost there. Unfortunately, there's no carb, perfect, uh, great carbonation book to recommend yet. Right. Um, but, but, uh, but, uh, that's, very much something that's been on my mind a late, uh, a lot lately. I want to drill down a little bit into some of your, uh, you know, kind of hot side and whirlpool hopping, and then also into some of the dry hopping. 
But uh, first, this episode is brought to you by Hopsteiner, your premium hop supplier dedicated to delivering quality hops and hop products in every package. Visit Hopsteiner.com for a complete list of offerings or select Shop Hops to start ordering today. Also, Ska Fabricating is excited to introduce the newest player in their all-star lineup of canning line automation, the Magic Bus, a fully automatic can depalletizer with pallet management. No more pouring time and labor into the manual handling of pallets, top frames, and tier sheets on your canning line. Packaging teams can simply load cans, deband, and press start. To learn more, contact SkaFab today at 970 970- Four zero three eight five six two, or reach out online at skafabricating.com. Um, let's talk a little bit about that whirlpool process. Um, you know, from early days to now, and in any kind of recent learning, um, how have you been playing with some of those uh, whirlpool? Uh, you know, also boil editions and then um, uh, whirlpool editions to kind of explore some of the different characteristics of bitterness that you can drive uh, through those various methods? I, I think it this it kind of started rethinking a lot of the things that I was not on autopilot with, but but getting, you know, flirting, flirting with autopilot on, um, which is just, it always happens and you need to find some way to kind of reboot yourself. Um, and for me, this happened to be with, uh, we did a collaboration with Trillium and uh we don't do a ton of collaborations generally um not of necessarily as some stance but just it's it's always fun to do them for that reason i guess is what i'm trying to say so it's it's it really is like oh no cool you make so it special was, I, yeah i was always so uh, all excited about that been been great friends with um um them since not long after we opened it all and uh, so JC, basically the idea was we were kind of going to go, uh, Trillium would brew kind of a scaled up version of Lux, um, a mosaic heavy pale ale we we brew. And then we were kind of going to do a slightly scaled up version of uh, uh, four point pale ale. So JC sent me the recipe and I hit him back because I was like, there must be like a typo with how few kettle hops or, or, or whirlpool hot, hot side hops just in general are in here i it was just a you know google drive and um he was like no no that's it so it was like it's it's certainly still not like neg nothing by any stretch but it was like half of what we had been using for years and drinking our beers side by side like they're very they're clearly come from different breweries but like ours are not twice as bitter. <laughs> so that was kind of like right. the first thing of like, uh, whoa. Um, so we kind of played with bringing things down a lot, uh, maybe in the last four months. And then, but then just also still kind of not noticing any, maybe the perception of how the bitterness felt was varied to a degree, but the overall presence of it was not that that changed so we're very much kind of in the early stages of this but i'm really curious about playing with ramping that actually back up almost to like this is an incredibly like dumbed down version of of what any research would would explain it as but almost kind of like snatch bitterness (laughs) Um, potential bitterness on the hot side in a more kind of reliable way before um, the kind of the more uh, confusing dry hot bitterness can kind of there's a, a beer can only be so bitter um, and I, I think a lot of kind of locking things in beforehand is kind of where my head's at of, is focusing on how we can maximize the world give the whirlpool some love you know I, I think um, yeah. in recent trends for how beers have gone it's kind of been increasingly all about the dry hop and we've seen that can make cool beers that don't really taste that different from beers that even have whirlpool hops in them but i think they're well i know a lot more is happening for kind of setting the stage for how that dry hop's going to hit than we previously were aware of so i'm i'm 
continuing to go down that hole. Yeah, right now. Are you, you know, so, you know, to that end, you know, all Whirlpool and hot side hops are not the same. Where do you find yourself leaning towards in terms of, you know, even in that Whirlpool process, what, you know, what produces a bitterness uh, with a kind of quality that you enjoy right now? So bitterness in general, I think, um, I, for, for starters, I, I, we've, I'm a humongous proponent that a beer needs bitterness, no matter what style it is. I think in kind of just where the quote unquote, like hazy IPA style has gone is just continuing to chase less and less of that. And that's all well and good for me personally. It's just not what bitterness is what makes you want to have another beer um, or have another sip. And, you know, I'm just having an Edward for the first time, you know, that beer is so just endlessly drinkable because of that, the appropriate presence of bitterness on that end and just wipe thing, wipe, wipe your hard drive and be ready for, ready for another Edward upload. But, um, the, the quality of bitterness from the Whirlpool, um, that's tough. I will say that we we used to not we we've pretty much always done a thirty minute stand between flame out and then beginning knockout. Even from when we scaled up our our size system, um, and then I don't know three or so years ago we started with without chilling, and then three or so years ago we started running through the heat X first to get into 185 190 yeah <laughs> the beers sensory wise we felt more inclined to them not dramatically so and maybe it was just we've never we're, we're only now getting to the point where we have even a remotely legit like sensory program like a true program i mean we've always been doing it but very informally um so that but we had uh chilling pre-chilling and then um not pre-chilling uh samples analyzed and the pre-chilled beer actually had more measured ibus (laughs) even though everything it would just kind of go against any everything you would normally and that could have and there's many reasons I suppose I'm sure because there's a lot going on every time you know and every beer but um the beers that got the pre-chilling were actually like more bitter measured yeah so to be completely honest in a lot of ways we kind of just let that sleeping dog lie at that point because it was like well everything we could read says this isn't going to happen like yeah, it follows the logic that the beer would be that we would uh the drink of the beer would be better, but the part about like the measure the scientific part like that makes no sense, so I feel like this is gonna be kind of a fool's errand to try to like prove more with this or right. whatever um so but recently we you know, shout out to your sponsor, Hopsteiner. We actually did a collaboration beer with them for the main Brewers Summit. And that was the first time we had used um, some of their hop products. Um, I wasn't there for the brew day. I had to be up here. Um, but it, it was pretty much like a, a bitterless kind of aroma extract. And we also had hop, regular hops in the beer as well. And the the bitterness overall wasn't tremendously different from a, a a normal beer of ours, I guess. But the perception of the aroma and mouthfeel was really it was the most orange like beer that I've ever touched. Um, it was it was it didn't translate fully to the packaged product, but taking it off the tank, I was I like could not figure it out. It was very like very very like approachable and and nice, but just the intensity of this one directional flavor like kind of floored me. So that definitely got me interested in um playing dabbling more in in that world. We for the sure. longest time it was kind of just like all right, the only thing you can get is the bittering extract 
we don't even we're adding like a half pound of apollo for a 20 barrel batch for our bittering charge like so what we're gonna get a you know get a pipe at to add add this add this tar instead like that's only gonna add more time for us um we'll skip that so now with the so i'd kind of written it off so now with this new and we never played a ton with cryo we we have but it it's always kind of been the feeling of the benefit isn't worth pursuing that you know we can we can use them and feel comfortable with it but um, unless for very variety specific, and even that's mostly anecdotal about what, where that, uh, form, you know, suits the variety right. better. Um, like Equinot's kind of the one that we do try to use cryo version of, oh, yeah. but it's, yeah, for just a little bit in my head, it's kind of a, you know, green pepper hedge, um, that that hop can, can bring. Um, but, uh. And so the cryo form, because there's less vegetal matter, it seems to not pull that flavor out as much. That seems to be kind of just the, the our very loose experience. It's it's part of a dry hop in a beer that has a bunch of other hop or a, uh, three other hops in it. So it's hard to really point the exact sure, finger sure. at at what's going on. But yeah, um, but yeah, we have on the whole been relatively conservative in that um, way of of playing with too many things because I mean for, to be honest for until recently I in my head it was just all about the dry hop and how you can manipulate that and I think obviously that's still a huge part of everything and how that finished beer is but um I'm kind of realizing going back to the the understanding that it really is a, a matrix of all these different components of, of the process not just dominated by one I think I want to talk about that a little bit more. But first, this episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publishers of Historical Brewing Techniques, The Lost Art of Farmhouse Brewing by Lars Marius Garshall. Equal parts history, cultural anthropology, social science, and travelogue. Historical Brewing Techniques describes Northern European farmhouse brewing and fermentation methods that are vastly different from modern craft brewing. Order your copy of Historical Brewing Techniques today at brewerspublications.com. Also, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, a special deep-dive email only for all-access subscribers, premium content, and all-access exclusive merchandise. Go to beerandbrewing.com and click on the subscribe button to join now. Um, as a subscriber to the magazine, you always get to see it first because we release the digital edition of the magazine on our various apps uh, about a week or two sometimes before uh, uh, those mailed copies get to folks. So if you want to be the first, that is the way to do it, beerandbrewing.com for that. Um, let's... Uh, I want to talk a little bit, you know, we've talked a little bit now about Whirlpool, but let's talk a little bit about your dry hopping process. And I'd also like to um, pick your brain on hops blending and how you go about thinking about that. Uh, just because it's the hardest thing for any brewer to articulate for me. And so I'd love to put everyone on the spot to try to, um, you know, put these kinds of, you know, flavor pieces into words and understand how you think about those combinations. Um, before we do like, let's talk a little bit about that dry hopping process for you. Um, obviously, you guys are using an expressive yeast, as the Alvarado guys might say. Um, you know, something you, uh, I don't know uh, exactly what that is or whether you're public about it, but um, do you engage in kind of mid fermentation dry hopping? Are you looking for that kind of biotransformation process? Talk to me a little bit about how you, you go about uh, dry hopping your beers. In general, for just our hop. Um, hops in all ways we we've kind of been been structured by limitation in a lot of ways when we opened hop contracting was kind of at its tightest um right which i definitely didn't plan for and that's one of the many reasons why you should probably work at a brewery before you try to open one um but uh so there was kind of we only had x y and z varieties we could you know, pull from unless we wanted to pay absurd rates on spot, which for, which also the spot market was totally different back. Everything was different, you know, hop, hop wise. Um, so I, I think we do have a relatively methodical view of, of blending 
methodical in the point of less is more, um, or at least there's there's a much higher chance you could really understand what is how this how these are all interacting if you're not throwing too many spices, you know, in the in the chili. Um, chili's probably actually the worst analogy for that because apparently how to make good chilies to do that. So let's leave chili out of this. Um, but it, like none of our our other than substance, which is very was very much driven by constraint. Um, none of our beers have more than four varieties of hops um, in them, and most most are are three. Um, are, is kind of like where where most most of them end up. Um, and I just I, again, you know, going back to kind of what we talked about earlier, even then, I still feel like I don't have you know the blueprint of really what is going on. Um, I don't have a whole lot to say on on that other than it's again it's very much a results driven thing of we really like this um we'll tinker a lot here and there but again in pretty conservative ways where i think a lot of the variety of all uh, of a lot of breweries comes from especially on the hoppy side of things is really trying to get down and dirty with some of that and i think that's kind of because we've haven't really went that path. We, it's tough to have a, a forum to really like try th- not throw everything at the board, but really just play around with the canvas a lot to really kind of try to try to v- develop a, a, a deeper understanding of kind of that that other layer, that next level of right. of what's going on there. Um, so I think there's we're always looking for those things, but without being kind of willing to our our desire to to want to try to perfect existing things i think still overrides that where but that is something lost i think in 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 going one way versus another's uh not wouldn't be my strong suit to to definitively draw any conclusions so you all are large enough to select now how have you defined for yourself what you're looking for in some of these uh, hops varieties that make up the you know the kind of core of some of the beers that you make? It's hard because, <laughs> again, from early on, there there was no way we weren't going to get varieties from a bunch of different places. Yeah. In, in a lot in a lot of the cases, um, so we kind of had to have this uh, just reliance that on the supply part of it was ignorance, but also just a reliance on the seller that there's kind of an aggregate for what Centennial is. That's except, you know, an industry standard for what Apollo is or, or, or what, what have you. So going to selections really opened up my eyes for how goddamn different, you know, four SIM codes can be. Yeah. Um, that are all grown by, you know, high level professional farms that do this literally for a living. Um, so kind of with just that like initial shock of like, whoa, we've definitely been, when we're doing that, we really kind of want the, the, uh, you know, platonic ideal of what a Simco Simco is not the most robust one or most, um, you know, loudest one or even necessarily the best quote unquote one, but what the, what Simcoe should be, uh, when it's good or, and that's obviously, I don't know why I'm, I'm spending so much time on Simcoe, but, but that one in particular was one that, that was just like, what? Like this is, this is all really, (laughs) um, where some like really were very, uh, I mean, if you told me it was mosaic, I wouldn't have blinked an eye. And then others in uh, different lots were very much more uh, subdued, you know, kind of, you know, had had a little bit of that um, just kind of kiss of stone fruit, but was much more on the piney, kind of more um, subtle side. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, – so that, that will be definitely something that is – increasingly important I think as we go on which I think you've seen a lot of breweries kind of refocus on that for sure yeah um so 
Yeah, I guess that's all. Just there's. Unfor- it sucks that you can only do it once a year. That's for sure. Yeah. So, um, but the one again of the drawbacks of kind of trying to maximize your your buying power or whatever, and your ability to select more varieties, is having to shift a lot of your business into single streams or at least fewer streams. Right. Which over six years, you know, we've got hops from a lot of places. So we there is if some something bad happens in one it, it's a safety net really and throughout that process you establish good relationships with each one of them. Um so that's been tough um to to navigate it you you can navigate it but it it that's been the only kind of shitty part about about that but it does um, hold a lot of future benefit. I'm I'm really excited about from a kind of personal hop fanatic standpoint, and I'll define you as that. I don't know if you define yourself as that. Please, um, you know, are are there uh, things that you've smelled or rubbed, um, you know, in the last year that have particularly excited you or sparked some ideas in your brewing mind? To be honest, um, not that there w- there isn't. Hops out there, but the, on this last run out there, there wasn't anything that I kind of literally wrote home about um, personally. Um, I think part of that is a little bit of fatigue. Not that I don't want more varieties as a brewer, but a slight fatigue of just how different can each one be. There's starting to be a little bit, a degree of sameness. I'm sure growers are far more aware of that than I am and are you know, growing to avoid that. And I, I'm, I'm sure they really are, but I, I, and the other kind of uh, side to that is going back to like how few contracts we were able to have for so long. Like, like this is the first year we're able, our Nelson contract came through. So for me, Nelson's might as well be HBC, you know, <laughs> whatever. Cause it for, it's practically brand new to me. So that's, been really exciting. Sabros, definitely, obviously, um, a lot more new than Nelson, but is um, a very, very interesting hop. And um, going back to Hopsteiner, we've continued to use more and more um, Sultana, which is one of their kind of right. relatively newer um, experimental varieties. Kind of has the what a lot of Hopsteiner hops have is much bigger alpha profile, but. Hopefully, if a hop's grown well, you should probably get a much bigger oil profile with that as well. And when that when that hop's good, that's the most pineapple hop I've ever come across for sure. It is an interesting challenge, you know, for IPA brewers today to kind of build that diversity. And I, I love, obviously, I'm a huge Nelson fan. I shouldn't say obviously, I am a huge Nelson fan and loves you know Southern Hemisphere hops because they get weird. Talk to me a little bit about how you balance that kind of pleasure of the fun, big, bright, sweet fruit notes with some of these edges within those flavors, you know, to kind of, uh, add that little bit of, you know, first cleansing bitterness as we talked about before, but also, you know, that intriguing funk that keeps it from being just this piece of obvious sweet fruitiness. I think, uh, sub substance to be honest uh really that's kind of like in a nutshell what that beer kind of was is built on and and still strives to be going away from New Zealand hops um but that beer's about um 30% falconer's flight which is a blend of a bunch of sea hops pretty much that hops at a uh, hop union uh Yakima chief puts together um Thirty percent Centennial, and then the rest pretty much an equal blend of just a little bit of Simcoe, a little bit of Chinook, and a little bit of Apollo. The varieties in it have a, a few of the smaller uh, quantity varieties have have shifted here and there over time, but more or less the skeleton of the beer hasn't changed that much since we opened in terms of the spirit of it, and I mean. If you've ever even come close to Apollo, you don't need more than 5% into a hot bill to get exactly some of that oniony locker room character. Um, just like, you know, a little too much, you know, fresh bag of weed in your face, maybe <laughs> you could say. Um, but 
it's when done in kind of a nuanced way, it's, it is, adds exactly what you're talking about. Just this other layer, just this kind of like place you can go if you want to in a beer that keeps it interesting, keeps the whole thing interesting. Um, in, if I was given a massive contract for Citra or something and said that this is lifetime, you know, three or four years ago, we probably would have added, you know, a more reliably, you know, straight fruit hop into that mix, but it just wasn't really on the, on the table for us then. Um, and now we kind of, if nothing else, that beer kind of provided an example for us for like, okay, I like this because of this. So I think that's influenced a lot of things going forward where really exactly what you're talking about. Like we've never just shot for juice (laughs) and that's been, uh, I can completely comprehend why those are about as as crowd-pleasing of a, of a type, type of IPA as you could possibly produce. Um, and we've just never shot for for exactly that um, because of just, I think kind of just trying to play a long game, I guess, is when we do talk about, okay, we should bring more beers in or we should, whatever, we, you know, Pete and I talk about. Um, there's a recurring kind of theme of like a shared feeling of what, it always comes down to a long game to some degree. And us wanting to do this for our life. <laughs> I mean, I, I sure as hell know, like the, even after, you know, six years, like I can't even literally can't even fathom doing anything else but this. Um, so there's, I guess you tell yourself you're making these short-term sacrifices to be more, you know, stable or agile or, or steady in the future, even though, you're kind of kidding yourself because you have no idea what a future is going to look like. This, um, obviously, we're living an example of you know you never know what tomorrow is going to bring. But um, yeah, I think I got off track there a little bit. But uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, That's okay. Um, we've talked a lot about hoppy beers, but I know you know you're talking to me from your Milo main location. Um, where your your little studio is across the street from this brewery that you all have built as a uh, kind of a labor of love to make uh, wild and uh, and some sour beers, which is uh, you know kind of a passion project. Obviously, a small part of overall production, um, maybe even not a great commercial idea at the at the root of it. But you know, not every everything that we do is purely driven by the commercial uh, uh, you know possibility of it. Some of it is driven because you see the creative potential and you want to go after it. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, envisioning a wild program. Obviously, there's some other fantastic breweries making similar styles of beer. Oxbow in Maine is just such a you know a phenomenal producer of that kind of style. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you have carved out a vision for what you want to make um, in this kind of uh, you know wild sour mixed culture space. Um, and, uh, some of the first forays that you've made into it. Yeah, I think, um, in terms of the other really great producers of these types of beers in the state, you're, you're completely right. And I think I should have also mentioned kind of, Allagash because obviously with their spontaneous and sour beer program, um, they've really set a bar for what they do and it would be remiss to not mention them in that. Kind of like what we were talking about earlier about having something to add to the conversation in a category within the place you're trying to make it. I think if nothing else, you can look back with the hoppy stuff and be like, okay, there was a place for us, or at least there continues to be now. I mean, who knows if there will be tomorrow, but um, certainly continues to be a a space for us to occupy and develop um, now. And I think in the even despite how like truly Allagash and Oxbow are literally some of the best producers of, of a handful. I mean, Alec, there's no one that's going to argue with you that white is not the best whip beer in, in the States. Um, and I mean, b- both Resurgum, obviously with the foresight of how, of literally like bringing this idea to America, honestly, that you can do this well, um, is obviously amazing. Just, I, I'm, like the variants, but straight straight resurgum is is one of my my favorite beers. Period. I agree. Um, and and then uh, honestly, Oxford Native Wild is is 
on par. It's a very much a different beer, but very much same category and level. Um, but it just felt like there was from a beer from uh, the beer side of things, definitely, you know, more we could just add um, because it's us doing it, not someone else. Um, and the other part was really being inspired by an increasing number of, of breweries um, all over the country. I mean, it was kind of how breweries always operated, <laughs> you know, hundreds of years ago, but was just being really a, a adding value to their their rural area. Um, this Milo is like not even 2000 people um, now. It's the poor, it's in the poorest County in Maine. And without, if you haven't spent a lot of time in Maine, it's, it's hard to even, it's hard to overstate like how, um, centralized in the South, the state's population is. Um, I mean, outside of like the bottom third of the state is like, I think well over half of the population. And then there's a lot of green, (laughs) um, North from that. Um, and you know, accordingly just, there's not a lot of reason to come to Milo. And so that was when we did talk about when I certainly had the itch to want to, like pretty much any brewer does, if if they didn't start out doing that, everything kind of ends with mixed fermentation in terms of just the, the whatever that brewing mountain you're climbing. It seems like that's pretty much a recurring theme is it ends with um, you get there eventually one way or another. Um, so I was very much in that zone, but we just, there was never going to be a, a clear way to implement that into the space we had in Portland. Um, and then even though it's two and a half hours away, like when Pete and I talked about it there, we never even considered doing it somewhere closer. It was just, it was either Milo or we weren't doing it. Um, neither of us can still really explain why we were so <laughs> set on that and why we, that uh, um, train of thought, but um so to add something to a value, just a, a part of the state that needed, and that's not in a look look at what we're doing at all. It just it felt right. Peter says that a lot, and it just it felt like really the only way to go. And and here we are, and it still feels that way. So talk to me a little bit about building a kind of culture and approach to these mixed fermentation beers. You know, very much still in the in the process of of all okay. of that. I was never. I was always too impatient as a home brewer to want to play around with um, mixed culture stuff a lot. I liked. I you know anytime I could, I could get a lambic or goose or really just any mixed fermentation beer I would I you know love love that world but just yeah literally was just straight up too impatient to play around too much um so and again like I said kind of all all roads all roads lead back to you know the Rome that is uh you know mixed fermentation I think for for almost every brewer I I know um and it's just so different from what sure, what sure. I've been doing for the last X amount of years and still am, but just is so honestly, like at the beginning, it was like we were at least had our, our original system, um, our 10 barrel system. We had kind of put in storage for something. We didn't really know what. And then this is where it ended up. So at least there wasn't that variable to figure out, but we're really just brewing things and filling oak and kind of different, you know, blends of, you know, um, yeast and bacteria kind of ratios and playing around with, with ratios. And basically I did that way too much because suddenly there was too many, you know, colors, uh, colors in the, in the palette of like it. And it's like, oh, I, I have to manage all this, don't I? Um, as, as uh, So we definitely like learned the hard way about kind of trying to do throw too much at the wall and inevitably beers are going to get forgotten. So I think that was kind of the hardest lesson of like realizing over the first two years or so, like how much beers, maybe they were never going to be great, but who knows what percentage were at a certain point and then just neglected (laughs) and then, you know, for too long. And so there's just been very much more focus on that. Um, And, yeah, it's it's very blending heavy up here, kind of for the same reasons. Um, right. There hasn't been. There's no. I was listening to the your interview with John Laffler on the uh, the drive up here today, and I 
you know, hearing him talk about how, you know, they had kind of this, this, um, you know, sacred carboy where, uh, where, where uh, the culture was. And it was like, man, I don't, I think we're, we're almost accidentally developing kind of a culture up here of just, you follow what works and kind of keep pursuing that you, you refill that tank soonest or you, um, you know, you, you, uh, disperse that barrel and uh, whatever to use as inoculant. Right, right. Um, if you're liking what it is, that obviously is a, conf- you know, internal conflict of like, oh, it tastes pretty fucking good <laughs> as it is. I kind of sucks to, you know, throw it into this for another fingers crossed thing. And then just the uncertainty of how much these beers change, like whether that like you feel like you have forever when you're talking about forgetting them. It feels like it could never go past the point where you catch it and you're like, ah, okay, this is your, I watched you on your ascent and now you've plateaued in a place. We need to grab you now. Um, because it, because of how vastly different the timeline is from doing three week hoppy beers. Um, so it just feels like you have literally all the time in the world, but then how, how you can just suddenly two years, I mean, sitting here talking to you two and a half years down, down the line. Um, so I'd very much like to have a little more, honestly feel like I have more control of what's going on up here. Cause as these, you know, and then in the bottle, as a beer develops, like that's an entirely new world of, in terms of the existence of, you know, drink this as fresh as, maybe not as fresh as possible. I'm also not that guy, but you know, this is, this has a shelf life, a very right, def- right. defined shelf life. And it, it's a shame um, to not be able to enjoy it within that. Um, where these beers, some of them very much do have that. Others, you know, as you know, when you you know grab a bottle of Goose and see a twenty-five year Best Buy, um, it's like, yeah, they probably have the the. If you've ever been to Cantillon or Trefontaine, <laughs> like there's beers well over twenty-five years there. Um, they probably have probably have evidence that this that it that it holds up to that but you have just no idea with a with a most mixed fermentation beers uh which is fun exciting and exhilarating and kind of the chase but at the same time it's it's just kind of (laughs) like i feel that way way more than i'd like to (laughs) i don't know (laughs) understandable understandable so um, the way we typically close the podcast is talking about um, what success looks like. And so for you at Bissell Brothers, obviously, these are weird times to even have that conversation about success because most breweries are just trying to figure out how to get through it. Um, but I think that, you know, even at this point, you know, looking to the future, what would you define success as for Bissell Brothers and how will you know when you've eventually achieved it? I think about that a lot. Like I think probably most people that you ask that question to do. Um, but when I look at what kind of I, I anticipate will be the time when I feel like, okay, cool. Like any type of mental milestone you make for yourself time and time again, it's never it never brings the satisfaction you're really looking for or think you're going to be, you know, gifted. But I think looking back over that same period of time, I'm learning more and more that what satisfies me the most is the, the satisfaction of the crew of people that work at our brewery. I mean, the, the, it can be so easy to take for granted a, a good group of people um, that are reliable, are smart, are fun, that you want to be better because of and vice versa um, because it feels so good and natural <laughs> that it can, it can definitely, um, it can be easy to not, to, to forget that not everyone work, is able to work with people like we're, we're able to work with and taking steps to try to, whether that's, um, different types of insurance or, or, um, increasing time off or just, you know, what, whatever that may be. We've, I think have always been a very good employer, but for a long time, it was very unstructured. It was very kind of, you know, 
there was so few of us that it, it was like, well, you're, <laughs> there was not really a concern that no one was not pulling their share. I mean, we're all in basically one room. And, um, but um, as things have gotten bigger, just make life now, because we can make life better and more structured for everyone and, and a, a, a place that they'll, we've, we've been very fortunate to have extremely low turnover, but that obviously gets harder each day. And to strive to, to, maintain that that clip as much as we possibly can really when you do actually step back and see that is is probably what success is but it's not a locked in thing (laughs) it's 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 yeah there's that people element to it that i can really respect that you know there's the the accolades and the consumer adoration and that's one piece of it but you know um, for those of us that come at business from a creative perspective Oftentimes, I do hear it more often than not that getting that piece of the of the puzzle down and making sure that uh, the business is also working for the people that are making the business work, um, it is such a cool and important piece of the overall equation. Um, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GD Chillers. Old Orchard invites you to step up your fruit game. Hopsteiner is your premium supplier for quality hops and hops products. Scott Fabricating invites you to take a ride on the Magic Bus. Historical Brewing Techniques, The Lost Art of Farmhouse Brewing, is out now from Brewers Publications. And Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions are the best way to support this very podcast. Um, Noah Bissell, if people want to learn more about Bissell Brothers and uh, what you do, podcasts, etc., where do they find you all? Just Bissell Brothers um, at .com and, and Bissell Brothers or at Bissell Brothers for Instagram are kind of the, the, the main channels. Yeah. Um, and then um, Matt uh, and I, the uh, general manager up here in Milo, do a podcast together every week called Craning In. Um, that's very, it's beer focused, but kind of loosely so. Sure, sure. Well, thanks for joining me on the podcast, Uh, and I've enjoyed this remote conversation. I can't wait to get back up to Maine and have a pint in person sometime soon. Cheers. Thanks, man. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.